please welcome Jim Gavin and Manuel Gonzalez. Simon and Garfunkel here. Um, <laughs> Hello, darkness, my old friend. Um, uh, you're Simon? Yeah. Sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, before Manuel reads, I, th I thought I would uh, say a few words um, uh, about his writing. Um, I'm just going to read a, a random uh, passage without any context. Um, See if I can find it. Uh, this is from his new novel. Thank you for coming out to hear me read Manuel. Um, this paper, hoping to offer a more nuanced and complete consideration of the regional office, will assign the beginning of the regional office to the accident that should have killed Oyemi but didn't. The accident that didn't kill her, but in fact imbued her with mystical properties. The accident that happened on a Tuesday at or near Ikea. So, um, I know that, that is a representative passage. Um, I think a mark of a writer, you, you hear terms like style and voice, um, but if that passage was like spray painted on a wall somewhere, I would know that Manuel had written it. Um, it has that certain uh, sinister tranquility in the voice. Um, there's an almost uh, highly rational uh, institutional uh, quality to the voice while describing something absolutely fucking bonkers. Um, uh, plus the, the mixture of a kind of high and low um, that I, I've seen throughout his fiction, um, but I think it, it's especially uh, here in this novel, a, a, a kind of dexterity with both uh, uh, literature and pop culture. Um, and, uh, you know, his, I got to know his um, stories, uh, you know, our collections came out at the same time. And, um, you know, the first sentence of his collection, I think, it's one of those books where you read that and you can't not buy the book. Um, and uh, his stories are often described as uh, strange or surreal, imaginative. Um, and, and they seem to exist at a certain point of just to the side of the reality that we know. And there's usually just like one kind of turn that allows... Uh, a kind of really exciting mode of storytelling and um, and they're also really hilarious um, and uh, so I just wanted to uh, introduce Manuel that way um, he's a good pal and I'm excited to hear him read so thank you thanks hi um, so the, uh, I'm going to read from this far into the book so I'm going to give you very little bit of setup before I read. Um, the Regional Office is a secret organization that trains at-risk young women to fight the forces of darkness as they threaten the planet. And one day it is under attack, as the title implies. Yeah, that's in the title. <laughs> I'm very literal with my titles. The Miniature Wife is about... A miniature wife. Um, and so, uh, but what I'm going to read from, so there are two sides to the story. There's, it follows a character, Rose, who's one of the people who is perpetrating the attack, and uh, the character, Sarah, um, who works for the regional office and is trying to defend it. But this section takes place ten years after the attack. And, uh, and it follows Rose, um, more, more or less. 
And that's all I'll tell you. Oh, except for that I have been told that it's, uh, well, I, 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 I've been told by me, I said this once at a speech uh, before reading it, that um, it's basically my take of uh, the Reese Witherspoon classic, Sweet Home Alabama, <laughs> but with robots. So, <clears throat> Rose hadn't been told there'd be a robot. I wasn't lying, it's robots. That hadn't been in any of the literature, hadn't been part of any assassin training camp seminars or lectures, hadn't been part of any post-regional office debrief. Not that she'd gotten any real post-regional office debriefing. Everyone had somehow failed to mention that one day, 10 years into her future, 10 years after the attack on the regional office, a robot would show up hell-bent on ruining her life, not to mention killing her for all that regional office bullshit. Ten fucking years. Jesus, a long fucking time. They waited a long fucking time for her revenge. Not that she was bitter that no one had told her about there being a fucking robot. Not that she cared that the men and women she had trained with those years ago had assaulted the regional office with, had all but completely fallen off the face of the earth. But Jesus Christ, was it too much to expect a card at Christmas? A phone call on her birthday, forwarding information and a new phone number just in case, oh, who knows, a fucking robot stomped into her fucking yarn and bead shop and started tearing shit all to hell? It swung its robot arm at her. She pivoted, grabbed it by that same arm, heaved it through the wall, except that how that actually transpired went more like it grabbed her by her face and smashed her head through the cash register. Fucking robots. <laughs> Rose had often pictured them coming in here, the people who recruited her, Henry and Emma. Not right at that moment, though. God, what a fucking embarrassment that would have been if those two showed up just as she was getting her ass handed to her by some two-bit-looking robot that wasn't even fully covered in synthetic skin. No. If it were a choice between suffering a painful and brutal death at the hands of this crusher or suffering that kind of embarrassment in front of Henry or Emma, Rose would take the painful and brutal death every time, friend, and thank you very much. Not that, she'd pictured, not that she hadn't pictured that moment, though, that awkward and awful reunion. The bell over the door would tinkle. She wouldn't look up, not right away, even though she would know it was them, would sense it in her skin. Maybe Henry would clear his throat, or Emma would say, Hello, dear, the way she did, and Rose would look up and smile at them briefly, just so they knew that she knew they were there and that something was in store for them. She would offer them something to drink, some cookies maybe, because whenever, for whatever fucking reason, whenever she pictured this moment, she pictured herself in it having just baked a batch of chocolate chip cookies. They would catch up on what was new and relive old times, and then just when they were comfortable... Just when the last tattered shreds of awkwardness and discomfort had fallen away, bam, she'd pull out the banker box of files she kept in her storage closet, throw that shit on the table in between the two of them, and then yell at them, ten, there are ten more fucking boxes just like this one. Then she'd pull out a file, it wouldn't matter which one, and open it up and read from the top. Subject suffers violent and debilitating nightmares. Subject often uses sex as a weapon. Subject suffers from deep trust issues. No shit, Sherlock, she would say. That's the thing about being the subject who was abducted when you were fucking 16 and trained to be a superpowered assassin with the promise that you'll help save the world when really, really, all you're doing is settling a fucking score. Subject is often violent to herself and others. Subject often lies for no apparent reason. She could go on. She would go on. She would go on and on and on. She kept all the receipts, too. 
Every therapist visit, every prescription filled ever since the attack on the regional office, just in case. She had the receipts taped to individual sheets of blank paper, all professional and shit, and then tabulated in a spreadsheet. A highlighted spreadsheet. She had all of this ready for the day that one of those assholes showed up. Not that they ever would, but had it just the same, neatly organized, and then, stapled to the front, a 15-page itemized bill. And at the bottom of that bill, in all caps and in red, next to the line, total due, she'd stamped, you owe me my life back, you fuckers. She'd ordered that stamp specially made online. (laughs) She'd pictured this moment often, the banker's box, the invoice. But no matter how hard she tried, she couldn't make it feel as delicious a moment as she wanted it to be when she imagined it happening. A failure of her weak imagination, maybe. Or maybe she just knew them too well, knew that they wouldn't care. They wouldn't even fucking apologize. They weren't the type. There'd be no, sorry, we took you from the life that you knew, from your family, from your friends. Sorry, we whisked you away and made promises. So many goddamn promises, all of which we failed to keep. No, sorry, we made you cut that one dude in half that you still think of him from time to time, wonder about his family, whether he had one, what they might have been told about him, how he died. Sorry, you can't stop picturing the stunned look in his eye. They would justify. That's, that's who they were. She'd wanted to leave the life she'd been living, they would remind her. She'd wanted to get away from her dumb and neglectful father, her overbearing and angry mother, her pitiful and untempered sister. She'd hated her friends, hated her hometown. She'd hated her life. She had told them so herself. They came for her just when she needed them most. And what about those promises? What about what they gave her, the training, the powers they helped her discover within herself, helped her unleash and hone, the adventure, the thrills? Not to mention she'd been paid handsomely. She'd been offered work at the regional, after the regional office job. She'd been offered a new life if she'd wanted it, an apartment in Biarritz, a new name, a new way forward, and she chose. She chose the life she chose. They had done everything they said they would. They had molded her, taught her a craft, and then watched her become so very, very good at it. Could she give them that at least? And yes, she could give them that at least. She was very good at what they trained her to be, but so what? So what if she was good at this thing? It wasn't her life. It wasn't the life she thought she'd wanted. It wasn't the life she was supposed to live. Not to mention, they broke her fucking heart. She couldn't help but think that the whole robot thing seemed just so dated. The whole fucking enterprise just seemed so dated to her now. Cold-hearted revenge, comeuppance for crimes she'd committed in her past, etc., and so on. Not that the robot looked dated. It looked sleek and ultra-modern and kind of feminine, kind of like a girl. Although every robot that wasn't sheathed in some kind of human-like skin, and this one wasn't, reminded her of RoboCop. Even the sleek, newer-looking ones. Maybe that was the new thing with robot design, though. Some hipster kind of return to the retro. No more hiding the robot bits underneath synthetic skin and wigs and clothes. Less T-1000 from Terminator and more Maximilian from the Black Hole or B-9 from Lost in Space. It was sad, really, that she thought. This whole fucking thing would have been easier to swallow if Rutger Hauer were on the other end of this battle to the death. Jesus, Rutger Hauer, where the fuck was her head? She couldn't focus on one line of pop cultural reference, much less concentrate on not being smashed by a robotic fist. Still, it was weird to think, wasn't it, that there could be Rutger Hauer, bad sci-fi movies like Lost in Space, small, quaint bead and yarn shops in small, quaint Texas towns, and still be towering robots hell-bent on death and destruction. 
or rather the other way around. The robot first and still all those other normal things. She'd spent these past few years caught in a limbo between constantly thinking about and completely forgetting about all that had happened to her, but had finally begun to edge ever so slightly in favor of forgetting. And now this fucking robot beast showed up. It wouldn't stop swinging at her, or throwing shit at her, or grabbing her by her shoulder or ankle or wrist and slamming her into things, for one. Then to make matters worse, the fucking thing wouldn't shut up. It just kept talking, and in a strange voice, strange for a robot anyway, not the kind of voice she'd have expected a robot to have. Rose would have expected something like the robot voice of Stephen Hawking, but this was just like a person. Well, not even just a person, but maybe like a girl's voice. And for a second, Rose wondered if the robot was a girl robot, and then if there was such a thing, a girl robot with girl robot parts. But then it wouldn't shut up or stop swinging at her, and whatever it was, it was just like anybody else. Just as nonstop, just as goddamn annoying. It kept saying things like, leave it to them to train you just enough to get you into trouble as it wrenched a bank of cabinets out of the floor and then hefted it over its head, finishing with, but not enough to get you out, as it heaved the whole thing at Rose. She saw this coming, but then the robot must have seen her see it coming and calibrated its throw in such a way that, even though Rose jumped out of the way, it clipped her hard in the shoulder and spun her in midair like a spinning coin. And it said things like, was it worth it, while holding up a skein of yarn. All of this, it asked, is all of this worth the things you did, the lives you ruined, the people you destroyed, the work you unraveled, for this? Said that, or something like it, just before shoving the cabinet of alpaca yarn, go alpaca, you'll never go backa, toppling to the floor. This shitty little yarn shop in the middle of this shitty little town, was it worth that? It was a high quality yarn shop, Thank you very much. In, yes, an admittedly shitty little town, but even still, that wasn't her whole life. She had a dog, a big, gray, lazy Great Dane named Bertie, and a boyfriend. I have a boyfriend now, too, Rose wanted to say, almost said, clamped her mouth shut just before saying. Not that the fucking robot would want to know or care, but his name was Jason, thank you very much. And they'd been gun dating just after her roof started leaking, and she'd hired him to fix the leak. And sure, he kept trying to get people to call him Jace, despite all the time she told him to stop doing that. That he was making a fool of himself, but also of her just by association, which she was beginning to suspect only made him want to try even harder. And sure, just this past weekend, right as shit started getting hot and heavy across the bench seat of his pickup, he'd screeched things to a halt by asking her, so, what is this, am I your boyfriend or what? And she'd curbed her serious desire to headbutt him and instead told him, Christ, grow a pair, would you? Not to mention she'd known him way back in middle school when he'd had a total crush on her. And God, now that she was thinking about it, could he be more pathetic? Jesus, if she got out of this mess with the robot, when, she corrected herself, when she got out of this mess with the robot, the first thing she would do would be to break up with Jason. That was the goddamn truth. Except he was funny, and really cute, and a good fuck, and when it came right down to it, she couldn't get enough of that boy, even just sitting together on his couch watching DIY shit on the TV and scarfing down fucking lime chili Cheetos, or going at it like horny fucking teenagers every chance they got. And every minute of every day, she worried he'd find out who or what she was, and when he did, he'd be the one to leave her. And God, she thought, what if he came over now? 
What if he choos- chose now to surprise her with lunch or cookies or just to say hi? No, oh no, 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 no. The robot swung its fucking robot arm, and Rose didn't duck, didn't leap, didn't sway. She grabbed the thing and rolled back, absorbing its momentum, using it against itself, and pivoted at the last possible second, throwing it, the arm and the robot, head over ass, back into the wall, because fuck if this robot was going to ruin the one good thing she had. And then the robot smiled. It stood and turned and smiled, damn it. Well, well, it said in its non-Stephen Hawking voice. Look who finally woke up. And that's where I'll stop. My mouth was really dry for that one for some reason. It was, uh, it's the Santa uh, Ana winds. Yeah. I, uh... I wrote down some questions for you. Oh, I wrote down some answers. Let's see if they're the same. Where do you get your ideas? Um, I steal them from students I teach. I've noticed, uh, I recently had a writing conference and there seemed to be a set of questions that the person would give a long, rambling, self-referential thesis statement and kind of show off the whole range of their knowledge and then turn to the person and say, can you talk to that? So, um, <laughs> so I'll, I'll start it that way. Um, I, I, um, I read an interview with you that you, uh, you described your childhood as uh, idyllic. It uh, was. Suburban, yeah. idyllic. Yes. Um, and I was thinking of a, and I was uh, trying to match that uh, with some of your stories and the mode of your stories and I uh, remember a quote from J.G. Ballard um, which I'll read aloud for everyone's edification Um, actually the suburbs are far more sinister places than most city dwellers imagine their very blandness forces the imagination into new areas I mean one's got to get up in the morning thinking of a deviant act merely to make certain of one's freedom (laughs) it needn't be much kicking the dog will do Um, so could you talk to that It's true. So not only did I grow up in an idyllic kind of suburb of Dallas, um, although it, and it had its own dark night, dark side. Uh, when it was when I was in elementary school, I think it was the suicide capital of the world. And then for a while, uh, right after I graduated high school, it was the black heroin capital of the world. So it's got its dark side. But so not only did I grow up, though, in this kind of Edward Scissor Handian, like perfect lawns, uh, nice houses, um, I also grew up Catholic and would go to church all the time, which is just as boring as being in a suburb of Dallas all the time. And I remember all, whenever I was at church, I would just f- imagine what would happen if, like, marauders stormed the church and uh, how I would get out of the situation. And then also it was a weird building. It had these little divots that were regularly spaced in all of the walls, and I always imagined that they were bullet holes probably from the marauders that (laughs) stormed the church. Um, So, yeah, I think that, I don't know, you're in a suburb, nothing happens. You have to invent just about whatever you want to happen. Um, And so it leaves you a lot of time for invention, I guess. Mm -hmm. Uh, Also, I murdered people when I was young. Yeah, also. I mean, Um, I'm sure that has nothing to do with it. All right. Um... Let's see. What else do I want to go with here? Well, in in the section you read, um, I guess imagining that environment and 
there's a, a, a wish to escape uh, that environment. Or, you know, I think uh, like Robert Louis, Louis Stevenson says something like, the, every child's greatest wish is to be in mortal danger or something, right. you know. And, I, and a, lot, a lot of the reference points in the book, which are you totally wear on your sleeve, um, are like, Wrinkle in time, time bandits. I it's throughout, and uh, we, I mentioned a couple there. Um, do you? I mean, uh, I'm just curious. Are you uh, your relationship to those types of movies as a kid, and your the way you uh, are kind of paying homage to them in the, in the book? So talk to that. Uh, sure. Um, so I am uh, paying homage to movies that I grew up with as a kid. Mm-hmm. Fuck you. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, yeah, they're just um, like my dad. I feel like I said this a lot, and so I'm sorry if you've read this somewhere. But my dad watched a lot of really bad sci-fi adventure movies, and I would watch them with him, not knowing that how bad they were. My favorite being The Day of the Triffids, which I don't know if anybody's seen The Day of the Triffids. <laughs> it's a uh, holler. Um, it's. Uh, it's about an alien invasion, if I remember correctly, where the aliens are these walking, deadly plants, except for their one fatal flaw is salt water, which m- maybe which they should have they should have done they should have yeah. done their research. Yeah. <laughs> um, they should have sent an advanced team. Oh, Carl never came back. Maybe we shouldn't go to planet Earth. Um, what if that's what their names were, Carl? Uh, so, but I loved the I I just have a very fond memory of all of them. And um, and I remember like being mortally afraid of Maximilian from the black hole, um, and also getting into an argument with my copy editor, uh, who said that there was no such character in the black hole as Maximilian. And I finally realized it's because um, there was not an actor in that suit; it was just a like a thing. So there was never a credit for Maximilian, and that's probably why he's so mad in the movie. Um, but I like just all those things kind of just sat with me and um, and that was what I would read too I, I you know instead of reading Moby Dick I read The Godfather and The Three Musketeers and any other fantasy book not that those are fantasy books I know the difference but any <laughs> fantasy book that I just also could come across and read um and then when I got to college, I was all of that was kind of shoved out of the way for Milton and Shakespeare and Faulkner and Garcia Marquez and like Toni Morrison, who are all fine writers. <laughs> um, but when I tried to write in that vein without any of that stuff from my childhood in it, I found myself very bored by it, or it felt very derivative. Um, and so it came more to life for me when I started inserting all that stuff that I liked as a kid. So when, when did that happen? Like at what point in your um, That happened uh, my, when I was in graduate school. Um, and I... Uh, well, actually, the, the weirdness happened when I was in graduate school. The actual tropes of the things that I loved um, growing up happened after graduate school. But inserting weird moments... The first story I remember really um, being happy about the first half of it anyway. And that happiness matched by the workshop itself and what people responded to was a story that I wrote uh, about um, this guy who uh, decided that he and his wife 
um, expressed their sexual desires to each other by the clothes that they wore. And so he would wear certain clothes and he would read the clothes that she wore in certain ways and then that spilled over into just normal everyday life. And so they didn't talk to each other for two years, um, which is when she finally left him because they weren't talking to each other with their clothes. That guy was just an idiot and he was batshit crazy. Um, and that was a lot of fun to write. Yeah. Uh, but then I got nervous halfway through and I downshifted into a more normal kind of short story lecherous man narrative um, and the, the everybody in the workshop you know that old saw <laughs> which actually is totally an old saw the lecherous man um, everybody was like the first half of this was really interesting and exciting and unlike anything that we'd seen and then it kind of just downshifted and I was like well that was the part that I enjoyed writing the most uh, and I think it was because of how weird it was and so I kind of just kept pushing forward and then slowly I, I allowed um, fantasy and sci-fi tropes to come in too. Mm -hmm. um, so you, well, there was a period when you were like felt obliged to write more realist. Yeah, realist and um, boring, really boring stories. Not and not because realism is boring. Realism can be really good. Um, your collection is wholly realist. I, I wasn't fishing for compliments. <laughs> thank you. Jim always fishing for fucking compliments. We love you, Jim. Fuck it, whatever. Um, but like, and Deborah Eisenberg writes in a very realist vein, and her stories are some of my favorite short stories. Um, it's just that I became bored with my own writing when I was in that. I wasn't able to do anything that stretched the f realism in a way that made it interesting to me, uh, which is probably a. Uh, a weakness. <laughs> that is my. It's my um, well, Achilles' heel. I always feel like style is more a result of. It's a negative result. It's kind of you find your style because of what you can't do. Yeah. Um, um, did you find? Uh, well, you, you know, you started up with a collection. I'm curious to, uh, as someone who's <coughs> uh, bogged down in, in a novel, um, uh, you're. Your the, your stories, uh, I, I can. There's a Manuel Gonzalez voice that carries over, but I um, I felt in the stories for the most part there's a certain uh, coolness to the narrative in a certain way. Mm -hmm. um, but I and I felt the novel is really unhinged <laughs> in a really fun way. And like I just I think one of the I, I read it uh, again since my sense was that you were having a lot of fun and. I was I'm just curious to hear about your kind of movement into the novel, and d did this start as a short story? Like, how, how did it go? No, it didn't start as a short story. It's, um, there's a section that I started writing that's not in the book, but it was in the book for seven or eight of the nine drafts, nine or ten drafts that I wrote. Um, and it's uh, about this character, Henry, who is referenced in that section that I read, but he's all like men in black, kind of suited up, and he goes to collect uh, this girl. We discover his rose at this detention center, and he has the spiel of like, I'm going to tell you a story, and this story is your story, and this is how you're... You know, this is how your life is about to change and he's smooth and kind of handsome and charming and he's got all of the but she doesn't give a shit and she just smashes his foot, shoves him out of the way and tries to escape because that's basically what she's been trying to do 
all the time. Um, and I didn't know where I was going. I was just having fun with this guy um, and chasing after her. And while he was chasing after her, he was thinking about all the paperwork that we would have waiting for him at his office if he let her get away and how all the, all the guys back at regional would, wouldn't let him live it down if um, this like 15 or 16-year-old girl got the better of him. Uh, and then I was like, oh, regional. That's where everybody is. <laughs> this place <laughs> called regional. Uh, and I, I bet it's an office, so I'll just call it regional office. Um, and, um, and I was also very disaffected with my job at the time. Uh, there was this writer, Alistair McLeod, who was a um, Canadian writer who just recently passed away, well, I guess maybe two or three years ago now. But he said that writers write to their worries, just even if they're not aware of writing directly to their worries, that they'll look back at their, their work and they'll see, oh, yeah, that was the time that this was happening. And it's very clear on the page now. Um, but I was very disaffected with the job that I had. I felt like I was doing a bad job at it, and I felt like... Like I was really just unhappy and so that guy Henry he ended up also being unhappy working for regional and recruiting these girls and now they kind of all began to look the same and he wasn't sure that he was doing the right thing anymore and so he took her to regional but he left like he put her on the elevator told him who told her who she should ask for and he just started walking away um, but he started worrying too about what would happen because you don't just walk away from regional and I mean as soon as I wrote that I knew that it was true you don't just walk away from regional but I had no idea still what regional was and so he was wondering who was gonna like who regional was gonna send after him um, and he figured that it would be this woman Sarah and I didn't know who Sarah was but her name just appeared and uh, it said Sarah with the dark hair and then Sarah with the mechanical arm and I don't know where the fuck that came from either uh, but I, as soon as it was there, I was like, oh, someone in this book has a mechanical arm. I know exactly what world I'm in, and this is going to be fun. And I just kept going. Um, but it wasn't, like, it took a long time. Uh, it didn't take a long time to write the first draft, um, but it took a long time for me to make that the novel that worked the way I wanted it to. Yeah. Um well, that kind of leads me <clears throat> to my next question, which is um, I, in kind of more uh, imaginative fiction. Uh, there, it seems like there could be. There's less rules in a sense. Uh, you can do anything, um, <laughs> but I also feel like that is uh, terrifying. And that I actually think the kind of speculative or uh, imaginative fiction actually the rules have to be firmer they have to have a you have to have a sense of boundary and constraint right and um, you know your book kind of almost builds a whole mythology around this regional office there's a one of the narratives in motion is an actual history of the regional office while we're watching right. it occur um, so I mean you kind of touched on it a little bit but like when uh when do you know, in a sense, to put on the, the brakes? Um, when do you kind of feel that, like, the reaches of the, like, you know, the, uh, the boundaries where that you need to work with them? Um, it's kind of by feel, really. I don't know. Um, I don't really push too far beyond what I would accept. Like, I don't push farther than what I would accept, and I feel like um, if it's beyond what I would accept, then it won't. It won't work with um, anybody else. 
But I also just, um, like I'm familiar with a lot of the tropes and I kind of wanted to keep it within those trope boundaries, but then try and find ways to subvert them. So I wasn't pushing beyond those, those original boundaries, but I was like, especially with the stories, with the stories, it's a little bit easier to quantify or articulate, but, um, like there's a story where there's a guy who gets a unicorn from a flea market, um, and his neighbor, his friend from high school, um, hates him because he now has this fucking unicorn, and he doesn't have a unicorn. But also, I wanted to think, well, what it would, would it really be like if you had a unicorn, and what would a real unicorn actually look like, especially if you bought it from a flea market outside of Houston? And it was a thing that, uh, so you know, you have the idea of what a unicorn would inject into your life, which would be fantastic and amazing and full of rainbows, but it's, I would also think, oh, it's uh, probably a pain in the ass. Um, it probably would cause a lot of jealousy and strife and probably tear friends apart more than bring them together as any bright, shining, interesting thing tends to do. Um, and that uh, it probably would stab you in your chest if it had a chance, which is what happens. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, but I, like, I didn't do anything beyond like just set a unicorn in a realistic story. But then once I did, I gave it physical weight and gravity so that you had to maneuver around it. It wasn't just a thing there that was a metaphor. And I think anything that I put in the novel, I thought of it in the same way. If it's going to be there, it has to, it has to do work. It has to have uh, a weight and a physical quality and concreteness to it that your characters have to maneuver around. They have to deal with. Mm -hmm. Sarah has a mechanical arm, but it, I made it so that it's a mechanical arm that nobody can tell which arm is the mechanical one because that's how they made it. And there is a bet uh, in the office about whether she really has a fucking mechanical arm because nobody's seen her use it and nobody really likes her and they keep telling her to change the office toner in the copy machine and blame her for the interns when the interns fuck up and she's like I'm not the intern manager that's Carol <laughs> and nobody nobody cares and so that's like when you have something sometimes when you have something that should separate you in this interesting and amazing way it does the opposite and so um, that's whenever something magical or fabulistic is entered then I try and think oh what, would it, what kind of a Pain in the ass. Would it really be like to have a mechanical arm? It's almost like the opposite of fantasy, actually. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mundanity. Is that yes, a word? I think that. I think. I don't know. We'll have to look in the dictionary. Don't, don't use it. <laughs> Mundanity it's is a word. word. Um, your two protagonists, our main protagonists, are are young women. Um, what is your obsession with young women? Do you want to talk that? Or that's um, been heavily documented. Well, <laughs> um, um, uh, I guess um, your. <laughs> the 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 angst of youth, I think, is especially in uh, the Rose sections. Right. Um, the two protagonists have their the narrative styles are very different. Uh, uh, Rose is very vernacular and loose, and Sarah is much more um, quiet and uh, buttoned up. Buttoned up. So yeah. um, these characters seem to come to you naturally, but like, what at any point were you were you diving into your own? Uh, Teenage angst, rebellion. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's weird. Yeah, for uh, Rose, often it was like the angst and rebellion that I never actually enacted when I was a kid because I was a very good kid. Like there was one night 
in my entire life growing up that I snuck out of my parents' house, and I ended up just walking around the park for maybe 20 minutes and then snuck back into my parents' house. Um, and so Rose was the antithesis of that person. Um, she's more like how I am now, in that I don't give a fuck <laughs> about things. And... Um, and uh, but she also I drew on a few people that I I knew growing up and who I've become friends with since, um, and then also a type of young woman that I ran into frequently. I lived in Paris, Texas, which her shitty town is based on, and I taught high school for a year. And uh, there was just something about a small town, northeastern Texas, shitty little town, that um, infected. Uh, her voice and like other other voices of women that I knew and there there's this one woman um, I doubt this will ever get back uh, to her um, because she lives in Paris, Texas um, her name was Rochelle and she worked for my friends who owned a bakery there and she was like the meanest, grumpiest uh, woman who was like, well I had to I break my husband's nose again last night. <laughs> and, like, and then she would tell you the whole story. It would be a hilarious story um, where she was, like, wrestling with her husband and then broke his nose. Um, and then, like, she, like, <laughs> she, like, I got arrested again last night because I, I was driving home drunk, but I knew that that was the wrong thing. So I pulled over on the side of the road and sure enough some fucking cop came and was like what are you doing on the side of the road well I'm drunk I don't want to drive home and then they arrested me <laughs> and I'm like yep uh, and that story's in that's in there um, almost verbatim uh, and uh, so that's where a lot of Rose came from and um, Sarah uh, yeah I don't know I'm not sure um, I just had a feeling with her that she would be where her mom is abducted when she's very young and she doesn't know what happened so that has to affect you I'm sure not having had my mom abducted when I was very young I can't say specifically but empathy um, I enter the shoes of a character um, <laughs> uh, but yeah I, I don't know just the fact that the fact that I already as soon as I approached her had her there was a point where I had her wonder whether she had a mechanical arm or not because even she couldn't tell which arm, she knew which arm was the arm but she couldn't uh, see the difference um, because that's how good the technology was um, that that kind of built the character that came out of it, like mm -hmm. just that uncertainty and doubt um, and questioning yeah um, Ask maybe one more question, and maybe we can do ask the audience. Oh, sure. Um, are there... Uh, uh, you've gotten to the end of two books now. Are there are there certain things that you uh, that you realize you're, you're kind of writing about only after you've done it? Certain subjects that come up, obsessions. Um, well, apparently, young women. Or let me... That and also, do you, what if what do other people see in your fiction that you haven't, you didn't notice you were doing? Because I, I think you kind of operate at a certain uh, level that you may not even actually know exactly, <laughs> like right. all, all the stuff that's there. Yeah, no, people see stuff in my stuff, my fiction that I am very surprised by. Often, um, 
because I have a very like specific idea in mind. Well, often I'm not worrying about whether what this means or that means uh, because that gets in the way of me writing the story that I want to write. Um, like with that unicorn story, somebody asked me, like, what is the unicorn really? I was like, a, a unicorn. <laughs> and she was like, yeah, 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 but what is it really? Like drugs, sex, like uh, slave trade, what is it? I was like, it's a, it's a fucking unicorn. <laughs> it's just, when I wrote it, it's a unicorn. When I read it, it's a unicorn. It's just, to me, it's always a unicorn. And she was very un- unsatisfied with my answer. Um, but I'm fine with other people thinking whatever they want to think about it. Um, I did have somebody tell me that uh, after they finished reading it, uh, he, uh, he was on the plane when he was reading it, and he finished reading it, and immediately, when he landed, called his mom to tell him how much he loved her uh, because of the book. <laughs> and I was like, "Huh, that's not that's not a reaction I ever would have, I ever would." But like Sarah's mom is abducted, and you find out what happened to her, and there is some very um, you know sad things about that. But it's not the thing that I am always thinking about when I think about um, the the book. I find that. Um, like in this book, especially the thing that I kept coming back to is uh, what happens when you get what you want and it's not what you thought you wanted, and then you're stuck with it. Um, and then also, just uh, it's shitty to be in charge of people. Those are my themes. <laughs> so in English class, they'll call me like, "What is the theme of this novel?" I mean, like, it's shitty being in charge of people. <laughs> being a manager of shit is awful. Because <laughs> nobody does what you want them to, and you're responsible. Being and a dad too. It's I like know. being a dad. Being a dad's easier um, than being in charge of people when you're me. Because um, I'm bad at organization and administration, and telling people how to do things. And money, yeah, um, many, many things. There's a lot of things yeah. I'm bad at. This is one of the few things I'm good at, people. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, with that, does anyone have like to ask anyone a question? Yeah, Eliza. Um, do you have any idea when you know a character has come across from a sketch into actually having life? You know, is there a <clears throat> and sort of just some way of gauging when it gains enough weight or depth or when it takes over the voice or Yeah, it's when when that character takes over the voice is usually when suddenly I'm like, oh, this... Because Rose did not sound like she does when I was first writing her. She sounded more just a regular third-person narrative. And now if you read through it, you'll see she's got a mouth on her and she's uh, contrarian, and she is full of bravado and insecurity, but like, um, it took a while for me to get her to that place, and it was just, but it was just a lot of writing scenes with her and putting her in situations and seeing how they played out. Um, and then also, um, with this book, it, the, there was a huge rewrite at the very end of the process where I took everything, um, I wrote a new beginning, three pages or four pages, and it made everything else look like shit. Horrible, horrible writing. And so I threw it all away and started over. And so, but after having spent almost four years with the characters in the world, and so jumping right in, I jumped right in with the voices of those 
people because I'd had it for so long. But it's just a lot of time. Um, and making them do stuff is what, like, clean my room, and the rose would be like, fuck you. <laughs> Except for, I, then I'd be like, yeah, I don't want to clean my room either. That just went to a weird space. But another question. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I was uh, wondering about the. Uh, I was noticing in the extra few reds that like the bureaucracy versus like the fantasy. Uh huh. I was wondering if you could like uh, right like the banker's boxes, the organization, right. like kind of the nuance of like how you came up with the title like oh back at regional. Right. right? So I was like kind of curious. You know, you talk about like being bad at organization and management, but somewhat like a thing that I noticed. Right. Was, like kind of the idea of management and kind of like just being a middle manager, but also like fantasy. That's what like. I don't know. I don't know where that kind of came from. Yeah, well, I feel like whenever I have, like, with, um, you know, whenever I have a situation, I always push it to its, like, logical or its illogical, logical end. So, of course, if there's a regional office that does this world saving stuff, they also have to have accountants um, and they have to have, like, a system of organization and they have to, like, because that's how things run and you can't get away from them. Um, and in this book, I thought it would be fun to actually dig into, like, what is the... There's a, there's a whole middle section that's... Um, because it's fronted by... a travel agency, the Morrison World Travel Concern, um, and they're taken hostage, like when the attack first happens, and that whole middle section is just with the hostages, and it's all about, like, petty office bullshit that happens, and also they're trying to escape or not be killed, um, but they're like, you know, they're just, you know, office people, and you're stuck in a, a room with the people that you really only can tolerate for, like, eight hours a day in an office and now you're stuck in a life and death situation and so when there's nothing to do and people are worried about what should happen and they're trying to break the ice by saying well maybe we should play a game then of course there are going to be people behind that person making faces like oh fucking Laura and her fucking games <laughs> or like how many times is Bradley going to tell us about the square dancing class that he's taking in Bushwick <laughs> and, and so like I feel like that makes it more of uh Less of just a surface like like action kung fu assassins thing um that stuff is fun, and I want it to be there, but I wanted to like I wanted it as a way to get into um the stuff of being in an office and just being uh, a person and then also I've had a lot of administrative jobs, all of which i were I was bad at. Uh, that I can't rem let go of. Like, I can't unlearn all the things that I was bad at doing. And the, every, whenever you turn in, like, receipts for reimbursement, you have to put each receipt on its own blank piece of paper um, and, like, put it in files and give it to them, and then they'll give you your money back. Um, so I figured that she would like, do the same thing in a spreadsheet. <laughs> How else are you going to keep track of it? <laughs> Any, did you have a still question? Uh, I was going to ask you, does your speed change when you're writing more of an action sequence? Like when I'm reading the novel, I'm in the middle of it right now, it's really, really fast paced. And, and I don't know if it, it, do you physically feel yourself writing faster as you write a more energetic scene? Or do you kind of stay at one pace through like, whether it's a quiet or short story or like a more rambunctious novel? 
Um, I think it, it has less to do with what's going on in the scene and more to do with how easily I can see it. Um, and so some of the action stuff, it took me a lot of laboring over it to figure out how to write it in a way that made it um, interesting to me. And then some of the scenes of just character stuff, I could see it very clearly, and it was just really easy and fun to write that. So it's more like how how accessible it is to me while I'm trying to write more than like the action of it. That would be funny, though, if I could do that. If I just like, like smoke would be rising, and Sharon would look, my wife Sharon would look in and was like, must be a, must be a nail biter. <laughs> That's how she speaks. It's not at all. Any other, any other questions? Yeah, Josh. Oh, yes, gentlemen. I was curious, you mentioned you have children. I do. Yes. Do you watch garbage movies with them? Are you passing on the torch that your father... Um, I'm watching movies with them that aren't yet garbage movies. Like, they're, I mean, like I was trying to get them into, uh, excited to watch that old, um, what's his name, the Thomas, he was an Elliot in... um, Henry Thomas. Henry Thomas, the cloak and dagger. Oh, right. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, and I was describing it to them, and they were like, mm. <laughs> <laughs> So I think what I, soon what I will be doing, because we also, they're still at the age where, and we are in this, the era of limiting screen time, screen time for uh, the kids. So, but soon it will be a situation where I will just be, and it's starting to be, I will just be, in the room with the TV and the TV will be turned to what I want it to be and if you want to sit down and watch it with me fucker then do and what are we watching oh cloak and dagger Um, because it's on HBO go Um, and uh, but I do watch like they really loved the karate kid which I was very happy about because the karate kid is very influential in this book Uh, and they love like but I don't consider that a Garbagey movie, genre. yeah, genre movie, yeah, 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 and they love genre movies. Like my um, son will watch any number of the Star Wars at a drop of a hat, including the prequels, which is a, I know. I didn't tell them. I didn't tell them about them. Uh, they came home from school one day and were like, "Did you know there are three other Star Wars movies?" I said, "Who told you this?" <laughs> Say goodbye to your friend. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so we, I'll, I'll watch the things that, and they like that kind of thing, especially my son a lot. Um, so I'm looking forward to like, I don't know. Like my dad would just always have like the Scarlet Pimpernel or Zorro and um, the Lone Ranger um, TV show on, and we, I would just sit and watch. And I would always be like, oh, I would have a sword. This <laughs> is the takeaway. Yeah. <laughs> Any other questions? Yeah. Yeah. Um, we saw you guys speak like three years ago or so at the LA. Oh yeah. And uh, I remember you mentioned regional office, and you said like, "Oh, I'm working on this novel right now," and you were kind of, kind of saying what a pain in the ass it was. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but then it probably was. Oh yeah. Thanks. <laughs> I'm glad I instilled so much confidence back then. <laughs> what's, the, what's the deal with that? Why was it hard? <clears throat> um. At that time, it was probably at a point where I knew what the problem was, but I didn't know how to fix it. Um, 
because the pro there were two main problems that my editor and agent and I singled out. Um, the pacing wasn't where it should be considering what was happening in the story. It felt like it read slower than it needed to be. And there was a barrier of entry into the world. So like if you were a fan of Alias and Buffy the Vampire Slayer and um, La Femme Nikita the movie, then you would know this world and you would be able to enter it. But if you weren't, I wasn't doing enough work to easily get you into the door so that then you could you know, decide whether you wanted to stay or not. Um, and it took a... And yeah, I didn't... That didn't come together until um, the uh, until August of what year is it now? Two, uh, two four, 2014, and I had already like I started writing the book in 2011, so it was three years before I got to where I could solve those two problems, and I didn't know how. Like it was the first novel that I felt was worth fixing. And also, we had sold it, so I had to fix it. <laughs> Maybe that's what it was. Um, but I and so I was, but I was really worried that I wasn't going to be able to. I tried writing two other novels, um, and I spent like five or six years um, total on those two to no end. Like it, there was no 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 upshot for that. Um, it's not like I could even bastardize any parts of those um, to make something else. They were just like dead in the water. I was like, couldn't like I just wasted a lot of time. It felt like, and I was worried that that's what was going to happen with this. Like, uh, and I had a number of conversations with my editor about that, about how what if I, can't, what if I really am just a short story? Like when I first met my agent, um, I told him I might just be a short story writer because uh, I tried writing those two novels and it just didn't work and I, that was all, that was a constant like thing in the back of my mind that maybe I just well, I couldn't do it and that's part of why it was a pain in the ass but look at me today any other things any other things any other questions or things anybody want to throw things Manuel Gonzalez is under attack yes um, I don't. Now I feel um, like I can move between both of Like I'm working on a new novel, and I'm excited about it. And I'm working on stories, but not as many as I would like to. Um, so I'm hoping that the summer I'll get a lot of writing done. But yeah, I, um, yeah, right now most of my ideas are coming to me as novel ideas, too big for a short story. And I have to sit and really think about an idea or think about what would be a good short story idea and then then it will work again but right now mostly it's my muscles are novel muscles why don't we stop there? no I'm going to keep going no we're done no, so oh, Mike. he does have oh, the, you know all those science fiction references are there do you just rely on what do you use ones that Really are part of your childhood growing up, or do you find yourself doing a lot of research and going down wormholes and learning about whole new works and things that you didn't even know about when you were younger? And oh. become, become well, no, there's some that there's some that uh, are in there that aren't from like being a kid, but I don't I didn't go in like Die Hard is a pretty influential bit of this, um, uh, but I didn't actually go. I'm a I'm research averse. Um, I'm learning a verse. If I can just make something up and then go with it, then I usually do, because <laughs> I'm. 
lazy. I'm, I'm not, I mean, I say that's my shorthand, that I'm lazy. But actually, I find that when I start doing research, the research overwhelms the story that I want to tell. And I don't know what to do with all the things that I just learned. I'm like, I'm now, should I just, like, plagiarize it all and drop it whole into this story? No, that's probably, that's probably bad. <laughs> so I, so I don't really do very much research um, and usually just try and sidestep anybody's like questions about is this real and then I'll have a character say this is weird I don't think this is real <laughs> and then and then the reader will be like oh okay so long as he knows that this is bullshit no, I don't usually. I don't usually worry about them being obscure, because um, I am not very esoteric. <laughs> I'm kind of just like a normal schlub, and it, like the day of the Triffids might be like the only thing I have in my pocket that's like, ooh, <laughs> that's something I. That's something that only five people have heard of. Um, otherwise, it's like what, like the black hole, lost in space, it's Die Hard, Karate Kid. Parent Trap, Officer and Gentleman. Those are the ones that I... Those <laughs> Officer and Gentleman. I didn't think that would be next on the list. But thank you. Those, are, those are the ones, those are my tools in my toolbox. It's what I got. Yeah. Coal Miner's Daughter. That's going to be my next novel. <laughs> yeah. Coal Miner's Daughter, but with clowns. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Thank uh, I appreciate it. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.